Well, that's that. Yeah. So what, six weeks worth of a trial? <laughs> so the, the interesting, the reason we decided to do this, right, is we're South Carolina citizens. Uh, we're not big people with a bunch of, with a huge podcast or anything like that. Um, Although in all transparency, we weren't raised here. No, I've we been weren't. here for about 20 years and I've been here for 30. So we're both transplants from the Midwest, but, um, I feel like we can make comments probably about the state, the people in the state, the way people in the state live. Um, that I think one of the things that we've found interesting as we've watched the trial and watched people talk about the trial is some of the perceptions that come from national media who are mostly sure. all based out of <laughs> New York and LA or, right. you know, large cities. Um, and they've almost kind of made this, this thing like they, they, there's a lot of stereotypes about Southern people that they get wrapped up in the way they um, kind of purpose and, and view this thing. Don't you think? Absolutely. Not just stereotypes. I mean, I think there's a, and I'm not saying, I'm not using this word to be offensive, but I just feel that there's an ignorance about gun ownership mm -hmm. um, and about weapons in general. And it's such an active part of the life for any hunter or, um, you know, sportsman, not just in the South, but, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. My father was a big hunter. I have been around guns my entire life. You know, I think I shot a, this is going to freak people out, but I think I shot a weapon when I was like maybe three or four. Well, I which mean, would be so scary we have a 17 year old people. daughter and I took her out shooting a, a 22 rifle when she was six. I have a video of it. Right. But I it, mean, that's, you know, it was it's just, part of life down here, it, you know, and it was part of life where I grew up, you know, there were, it was farmland everywhere, which is very similar to this area. And, people hunted they hunted for deer and and they went dove hunting and duck and yeah goose hunting they did this stuff and it wasn't a big deal and everyone knew it and you know almost everyone i knew owned a gun at, at least a shotgun and a rifle and honestly that's the reality in this state i mean even if you're not a hunter you're probably a sportsman you like to go out and shoot targets or you right know someone who is yeah i mean the the average person in south carolina or the average family in south carolina owns guns that's I just mean, the reality of it literally in this state it is now legal to open carry yeah that was just changed uh about a year year and a half ago you can now not a lot of people do it you know but you can literally you know carry a holster on the outside of your person carry a gun and you don't have to have a license to do it. You know, it's just, um, but I think the reason that, that people from large cities uh, think that's so weird is because most of them are cities that have really strict gun laws. Um, the idea of shooting a gun in a city is like, oh, I'm gonna go to some fancy sportsman's club and I'm gonna, you know, rent a firearm. It's or not- it's associated with crime. Right. It's not, you know, hey, let's throw, you know, a couple of rifles in the back of the truck and go out to the range. You know, we've got to sight in some new optics. or whatever. Right. Or 
I mean, we're getting everything ready because we're gonna go it's hog almost hunting. deer season. Right. Or deer. Or you hog, know, I know people who like, they, they literally plan their vacations around the fall during deer season. Yeah. And, and, and they're planning these trips, you know, and it's a big part of their life every single year. Well, what did I just tell you the other day? Like, I want to elk. I haven't elk hunted out west ever, but I want to. Like, I have this thing where I want to go elk hunting. But we have friends that go to, you know, Brazil to shoot dove, dove or quail because there's, you know, huge hunting over there. And, um, you know, your dad travels to Africa like almost every year. Sometimes it's every other year. Um, but, but, the, but I think it's important also to say um, that these hunters, most of these hunters are also very ingrained in the um, importance of conservation and part of the reason why they hunt, you know, is to prevent disease from killing out these herds. And, right. You know, it, it's not like they're going out just to kill animals. That's again, um, that's a, that's an urban it's a perception whole, it's a whole that a lot of people have, yeah, but you're right. So much right. Involved with it. South Carolina has the second largest feral hog problem in the country behind Texas. So, and, and, if, and it really is a big yeah, problem. And if you don't know what a feral hog and, is, feral hogs are, and they're very dangerous. They're wild hogs that tear up crops. They're very dangerous and they're bad for the land. Um, so that's when you hear them talking about hog hunting on this property, that was a huge part of mm. like, that's just part of life in South Carolina is hog hunting. In, in certain areas. for sure. Yeah. Yes. So it, it's interesting because you kind of got into the gun thing, like right out of the gate, which I think is really important. Do you want to circle back to how that played into the conversation in the case and the way that the prosecution <sighs> discussed that? I know. I mean, we're going to kind of, honestly, this, we kind of did this on the fly just because we felt like as we were watching this, okay, all, all this coverage is coming from these big networks and we wanted to put something and just sit there and talk. We're like, Hey, this is the stuff we talk about all day. I mean, literally if you live in <laughs> South Carolina, everybody's got their phone on them. Everybody's watching this. And the reality of it is um, I know somebody that grew up with the Murdochs, not, not like they were best buddies. They grew up in the same area. They know them. They've been at events with them before. Um, the South is a uh, South Carolina is not a, it's, it's a small state. It's a small state. And, and when you, when you're used to being in a big city that just goes for with people for miles and miles and miles, the way that things are in the South is and South Carolina, especially is you've got a couple medium sized towns, Columbia, Greenville, and Ch Charleston, and then everything else is small rural towns. And so there's tons of space in between them. And families know families. They do. I mean, that's that's actually one of my points that yeah. I talked about so many times. I don't understand why they wanted to keep this trial in that county. You know, they're talking about um, the financial crimes that he has admitted to. And there are over you know, almost a hundred counts. And how in the world did they find a jury of 12 people and some alternates who were not in some way related to people who were affected by these crimes, knew people that were affected by these crimes, or have a friend who knew? So it's just so intertwined in these small communities. And you know, if you've ever lived in a small town, I lived in a small town growing up and you know everything about everyone pretty much. I mean, 
gossip and innuendo, it's it runs like water right. in these small communities. And it's not always true, um, but a lot of times there's a shred of truth to it, at least. I just don't, I don't see any way that they could have found an impartial jury. And the fact that they came to a, a conclusion so quickly, you know, in my mind tells me that the decision was 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 already made. It was made a while back. How early? I don't know. Um, you know, this is this is not a case that I followed from the beginning. I remember when he got I remember when he got arrested and when the attempted suicide gone bad happened. I remember all of this. Well, in 2020, did this big thing on the boat, you know, incident, right, right, right. which there's so much backstory to this whole thing, <laughs> right? Really that doesn't is. even have anything to do with this trial. But with that said, you know, as I started watching the trial and watching it unfold, I just had this this thing in my head that I could not get get out. You know, I I'm a parent of four children and I'm sitting here thinking I don't understand this. Like what is the motive? And you know, the prosecution I think they knew they didn't have a great motive. At least in my head, they didn't. And so at the end, they made a really big deal out of the fact that they didn't have to prove motive. And I think that probably helped sway the, the oh, jury if there was anyone left to sway. There's no question, which it's super interesting. You know, if, if depending on how much you followed this, in the state of South Carolina, you don't have to prove motive. The state doesn't have to prove motive. And that's something that you and I, as we watch this, I even said, if I was on the jury, it would have been hard for me to dismiss motive, even though it, it wasn't, you know, the, even though the judge said, hey, motive doesn't play a part. You don't have to prove motive. That's one of the hardest parts for me in watching this entire case and just kind of listening to the state's case, listening to the defense's case. The hardest part for me is to get my arms around the why. Well, that's the thing. The prosecution said, um, you know, in their closing arguments, he had the motive. That was the first thing that they yeah. said. And I was thinking, you're saying this motive that he had, but in my head, this makes no sense at all. And even though you don't have to prove motive, they also both said, both on the prosecution side and the defense side, you need to use your common sense, right? And my common sense is saying, you kind of have to have a motive if you're going to flip the switch and yeah. go from this guy who's like really likable and personable, albeit, you know, kind of a scumbag secretly. I think like pretty not, much a scumbag, not, you know, not, well, not a, whether or not you believe yeah, he killed them, he's, he's still a scumbag. And, right. And, <laughs> and maybe not a, not a great guy. Um, clearly he, I don't even, I can't even go there, but being a liar and taking the leap from, you know, cheating people out of money to, oh, you know, I think I'm going to kill my wife and son. Yeah. That's a big jump. There has to be some reason why you do that. And that was that was the part I could never get my arms around. I, I'm with I I'm the same way. I, I mean, when I, you know, his his proposal of motive was that you know, all this financial stuff was the house of cards was falling. He was going to be arranged for that in just a few days. 
and that the motive behind this was to basically garner sympathy and to overshadow that. That's a like, kind of and, and the national media has jumped on that and been like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes no sense. Like, no, I don't care how much your life is in the tank. I, you don't go from, you know, oh, I've got a ton of financial problems and I'm going to get arrested for embezzlement to let me kill my, my son and my wife. So let's, okay. So we, <laughs> so the real, is, okay. So I just have to say <laughs> about that. Um, you know, last fall, someone that we knew, um, we were not friends with this person, but we had clear, obviously, you know, interaction with him. I'd be interested to see where this is going. Um, I have no idea what you're about to say. Was under investigation. <laughs> it's I'm talking about Scott Foster. Oh, you know, he the was whole on, rock star story. Oh my gosh. You know, our daughter cheered there. She was on a world's team there. He was her coach. I mean, that's a story that's we gonna, were around. That's going to be a movie someday. Oh my goodness, it was insanity. And that's you know, a different episode. Okay, so let me just <laughs> let me just say, um, you know, you want to talk about a house of cards that fell and was falling? Right. That was it. I mean, all around him, he was under investigation. Um, and was probably going to jail, not just for financial crimes, but also sexual abuse, for sex sexual abuse, and, for sex and assisting abuse in trafficking of young I mean, girls. It was a disaster. And, a yeah. and what did he do? He killed himself. Yeah, that's the move, right? That's, that's what usually, that's what usually I would, happens, and that right? one makes sense to me. I'm like, okay, I get that one, right? You don't go kill your kids. Especially your kid, who everyone says, by all accounts, was like your best buddy. He was your drinking buddy. Mm -hmm. He was your, you know, they're putting on oyster roasts and they're having a big time. You know, right. he, they're the life of the party. And, the, you know, uh, and they say that he had an amazing relationship with his wife. I don't know if he did or not, you know, but by everything that everyone around him says, people who knew him really well and people who maybe didn't know him really well, they said she was an amazing person and she was sweet and they had a good relationship and it's just, none of it really makes sense. And that was the, you know, that so, was the part I just couldn't get my arms around. Yeah. There's all these other little things. Well, I was going to, that's kind of, I was going to say is, is I think probably the, the interesting thing, and we kind of have to decide, I guess, whether we do this all in one shoot or whether we kind of, you know, do this in pieces. But we did this the other day, right? We kind of just started going through the case, mm -hmm. you know, and going, okay, look, what did the, what did the, the prosecution lay out? What was each individual piece? And then if you're a juror, that's, I mean, the whole purpose of this for me was to talk about it from the perspective of a lay person with no legal background and try to put myself in the shoes of somebody that was sitting in the jury, right? right? As a native of this state, because I think that's very hard to do. Um, if you live in New York or Atlanta or a big city and you don't know how the South works and you don't understand South Carolina, but if, you, if you're from here, um, and you've been here a long time or you grew up here, uh, what does that look like and how do you perceive that? So where did the, where do you think the, I mean, we are just talking about motive from a prosecution standpoint, mm -hmm. right? So I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just wanted to kind of lay out where we we're going to go on this. No. So. 
one of the things that I would like to revisit because I think, um, I didn't think this would happen, but I think it did. There's two areas where I felt like, um, there was false information that was presented to the jury and the defense really didn't do a good enough job, uh, going deeper to show that it was false. And they mentioned it. One of, one of the items they mentioned, um, but they didn't go very deep into it. And that was the, the shell casings, um, on the rifle. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, I mean, they didn't have the gun and it drove me crazy the way the prosecution kept changing testimony and saying, you know, these were family weapons. Well, they don't know that they were family weapons. They know that the family had those weapons. Right. And, and I think people outside who are not in, you know, they don't know very much about guns. They think, oh, this was a blackout. This is a, such a rare gun. It's a you unicorn know, gun. Only, Somebody must have made it out of it. No one has these, you know, in the state of South Carolina. That's crazy. Right. That's crazy. So let's let's just real quick. A 300 blackout is an AR-15. Okay. Which is very Which is common. Super, it is the most common sporting rifle out there. And it is the most common rifle used for hunting, hogs, things like that. Right. If you're going out deer hunting, you're going to use a, a different round, a different kind of gun. But for just general purposes, if you're on a farm running around in a, you know, in a ranger or something like that, and you need to keep a gun in your truck, it's usually an AR-15. Right. Right. So most AR-15s are chambered in... Five, five, six, or two, two, three. That's the standard. But a 300 blackout is just a subsonic round, which means it travels below the speed of sound. It's quieter. And if you put a suppressor on it, it's almost silent. And, okay? and why do they do that? And why do they hunting? do that? Right. So why? they hog hunt at night, right? And they're also trying not to scare other hogs. And also people are trying to be respectful of their neighbors. If you're out hunting at night, and you've got 1,800 acres of land, or even if you've just got 30 acres of land, which is common down here. A lot of people have 20, 30 acres of land, right? At one point, we owned 100 of acres of land just in a rural area. Right. Same thing. But that land usually backs up to somebody else's house. Right. And so if you're out hunting at night, very frequently, people will use a suppressor and run a subsonic round because it's quieter. Right. right. So a 300 blackout is not a, a gun that, like, no one has. Right. Will you talk a little bit about... Um, how they tried to link the shell casings that they found to 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 indicate to the jury that they knew for sure it was a family weapon and how that was not true. Yeah, so I thought that was very misleading. So to begin with, with a with a rifle, if you actually have the weapon, right, you can take the barrel and you can look at the barrel and compare it to the actual bullet because that's a specific rifling in the barrel and you can match those two together so you can say this gun killed so and so right right but they didn't have the rifle the murder weapon was not there they just had a kind of rifle right they knew it was a 300 blackout because the shell casings were on the ground right but you can't look at a shell casing okay when you, the way that a, a gun works is you've got a shell the bullets inside the shell right the firing pin hits the primer it ejects the gunpowder shoots the bullet out, right? You can't look at a shell casing and go, oh, this shell casing was shot by a certain, the primer's not specific to the rifle, like the rifling is, right? 
you can tell and go, hey, this is a 300 blackout, but you can't go, this is this 300 blackout that belonged to this person. The, the primer doesn't tell you that. Right. And so they also said that, um, didn't they say the primer, the markings, it didn't match or something? Do I, I don't remember what they said there. I'm not sure. But I know they did the same thing for the shotgun, right? They were talking about the fact that it was a Benelli shotgun, which is a, it's a really nice Italian shotgun. But, but they're it, not the only ones who own one. Every flipping house in this state has, has a, a shotgun, has a 12 gauge. And the reality, <laughs> that is true, probably more than one. And the reality of it is you can't check ballistics on a shotgun. Like, mm -mm. There's no way to do it. No, it's just a shell with shot inside So they of it. brought in all these guns from the house and said, and, and tried to lead the jury to believe that these are the weapons. Right. But they, in fact, were not the weapons. They were the kind of weapons, right? So they could look at the... It was like the, using a prop. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's right. It, 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 the, the reality was this. This is the... And I'm not... You know, we're not arguing one way or the other. We're just talking about, how, like you said, how they kind of misled the jury with the information that was presented. You could look at the shell casing and say a 300 blackout was used on this property and probably for this because of where they were located. And then you could also look at the history of them and say they own 300 blackouts. But you could not say that the 300 blackout they used was the murder weapon because there was right. nothing to trace it back to the 300 blackout they had. And the same thing is true with the shotgun. So it was circumstantial, right? Which in the state of South Carolina, and seemed to be you a can, stretch on that. Yeah. I, what I thought. And I thought that the 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 defense did a pretty like they they touched on it but they could have gone so much deeper they should have brought in a gun expert we just went deeper than they I ever mean, went on I mean, than we ever saw the defense go and it made right? me a little crazy one area and then the other another area not the only other area but another area where they could have gone they could have helped themselves so much was in the drug use mm -hmm. because the prosecution said look he's a liar okay we know that he lies or has lied in the past and sounds like he lies quite a lot um but they said he's lying he didn't he wasn't using that that much <clears throat> content right and we know that that's not true because we used to work in <laughs> pharmaceuticals in pain management yeah and we worked for a company that made oxycodone lo and behold mm -hmm. so <laughs> we yeah we know so, this that's how we met it is <laughs> that actually was, so, but, but millions the, of years right. ago so the crazy thing is they say well no one could have could have survived taking 1800 milligrams a day okay not true the guy's been on it for 20 plus years number one so he he has um a, a huge resistance to it it's not it's not going to affect him the same way it's going to affect someone who's never taken it so talk a little bit about that for people that don't understand opioids and opioid dependence and tolerance so in general um when a person takes a pain medication whether it's I had back surgery i had knee surgery yes, right whatever whether it's okay whether it's for pain mm -hmm. or then or for recreation um but let's just assume it's initially for pain that's what right. you said it was initially for um and you take it there the science has shown i mean my gosh, there's been so many, so many documentaries on this um, with Purdue and OxyContin. Well, what was the movie we watched with Michael Keaton? Dope Sick? With Dope Sick. Yeah. Right. And there's another one in on HBO. Anyway, so 
they know the science is that yes, people do develop a dependence on it and it's super hard to get off of. Mm -hmm. Like, and you will go through withdrawal when you try to come off of it. They know this. This is scientific and bad. Fact. And withdrawal it is, withdrawal is bad. bad. Yeah. And they also know that when a person starts taking um, a strength of medication and they're on it for a while, it takes more milligrams to yield the same exact result, the same level of pain management or the same, you know, feeling euphoric feeling. Yeah if they're not taking right. it specifically for pain, they also know that it, when it is being taken for pain, that pain kind of counteracts the side effects of opioids. So you can take, you know, maybe more than someone without pain, right? More milligrams. Right. Too. But anyway, let's assume it started at pain. He's taking a little more than what someone who doesn't have pain would take, you know, this goes on. He develops a tolerance or, or, or he becomes, you know, kind of dependent on it. And then, he maybe tries to wean himself off, but then experiences some side effects, but he kind of likes the way it feels too. So he keeps I mean, you said he, he went to, uh, not rehab, but he went to detox multiple times, yes. which means he went somewhere where they titrated him down. They completely took him off the medication and they got him to the point where physically he wasn't taking it. Right. Right. But the body still, there's so much science behind this. Literally, we could, we could talk, do a whole show on this, but the reality of it is, when you take an opioid, it binds to a receptor in your brain called a mu receptor, and it creates a feeling of euphoria. Right. So this even is scientific, yeah, this is not this something is science. That's just right. A, this is true. Opinion. Okay. So we know this. So even when you get off it and your body's not physically dependent anymore, it takes your brain months to start producing the chemicals that it stopped producing when you were taking the opioids, and you feel terrible. Not just like withdrawals. You get kind of depressed, you get tired, like you just feel like crap. Right. And so there's a there is a draw to go back and start taking again, right? Because you don't want to feel that way. Right. And he every time he went and Detox. detoxed, he ended up back on. Right. And right. so he just what you said originally was true is you escalate like and what worked at 10 milligrams, now you have to take 20. Right. Then you have to take 50. Then you have to take 100. And we were in the business. We saw people. Now, these were people with cancer, but they had developed uh, a dependence, a tolerance. We saw people taking 1,500 milligrams a day. More than that. Remember, we had a speaker who came in and said that he had patients who were taking. Over like, 2,000. Yes. Right? Yes. I mean, at one point, and I don't know if they still have this or not, Purdue Pharma was making 160 milligram tablets. Yeah, they stopped making Oxycontin. them yep, because they were being diverted so heavily. But they were still making 80s. Okay, so they stopped making. <laughs> Why would you make 160? Because they were making. <laughs> because they're making them. Right. What does that tell you? It tells you that there are people out there recreationally taking Oxycontin. Of course, yeah. At high doses. Yeah. Well, let's think about this. 160 milligrams a day. They're saying you couldn't take over a thousand milligrams a day. I mean, hundred. you can take two, three times a day and you're almost there. The idea that you couldn't, because you're right. The prosecution said, oh, no one could take that much Oxycontin. It would kill no, them. That's total BS. I've it's seen, we've seen true. people take it. We know they can take it. And if he had been taking opioids for 20 years, his dependency, I promise you, was that high. Oh, I promise you. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So that that, that was, was a BS a, that argument. Was a, that was a mistake. Mm -hmm. I believe. I does. I don't know. I'm don't not, you think I'm not an like, attorney. Don't you think it, the defense missed an opportunity yes, there to really explain yes, that? 
Yes, I do. Because that would have been so easy. Just bring in a pain management doctor. They can explain right. it all because the average person doesn't understand this. They don't know. No. I mean, it seems like crazy that someone would take that much pain medicine and still be able to function. Yeah. So that's two, right? You, you've got the opioid thing, which was not, we're not saying he wasn't taking them. He obviously was. Right. But again, how did the prosecution lay it out and where did the defense miss an opportunity? The opioid thing and the gun thing. Those are two of them right there. Right. Because the prosecution used it against him. Yeah. They said, oh, just another lie. Just another lie. Right. He lies all the time. Lies all the time. He, he wasn't, he couldn't have taken that much. much. He wouldn't even have been able to walk. He right. would have been dead. He would have, like, he, he couldn't have done that. I agree with you completely. That was, that was an easy one to, to show, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that that I saw a lot of commentators talk about, um, and this was before the verdict, right? Before the guilty verdict, mm -hmm. was his affect, how likable he was mm -hmm. on his on the stage or on the the stand. Um, I heard it kind well, of was a stage. Yeah, I heard one person use the term colloquialisms. <laughs> you know, these cute southern colloquialisms. Uh like and, they're all staged right yeah like uh, like he was kind of making it like guess what that's what people are like down here they right? really do talk they, like that they, yeah now i mean if you don't know south carolina and if you don't know the south like if you're from up north or you know out west or something and you don't know the south people kind of think there's one accent right there's probably six or seven just in the state of south carolina the accent's different in charleston than it is in Columbia, which is different in Columbia than it might be out in like a little town like Peeling, which is literally 20 miles away. It's different. And right. I and mean, you, you have accents that are kind of that Southern aristocracy. Charleston accent, thing. Charleston. Yeah. And then you have these small town accents where it's very country. It's almost hard to understand what they're saying. Right. Yeah. Like some of the words I, I've never even heard. of. They talk before. really fast and it runs together and it's really strong. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're from the low country, which is, you know, kind of the, it's, I don't want to say swamplands, but it's, it's beautiful. It's Charleston, the, but it's, right. but that's but not, it's the not no, it's very it's country. It's country, you know, and they talk slow. Everybody has a nickname. Everyone has a nickname. Paw Paw. That's not, that's you not know, strange. no, the, and for, but for the average person and for these, you know, people at Fox news and MSNBC and CNN, they think it's like some big show, right? Every, like it's every kid has a nickname down here. That's true. I mean, just about, yeah. Like I, our kids all had nicknames, right? You know, and sometimes you keep calling them by their nickname when they get older. Sometimes you don't, but our youngest daughter probably has about five or six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's really normal. Um, so the fact that the, you know, the media made it sound like that was, um, some big show it's not it's just the way people live it is, you know yeah. and it's one of the things that bothered me when i would watch i mean if actually we watched more local coverage of this than we did national coverage because we i personally right. we you know i just felt like the national coverage didn't get it they didn't understand south carolina they didn't understand the south and so i, I was kind of put off by the way that they talked about the south and i, I thought the local coverage was better because they just focused on the case well, you know, I mean, I think you can only dissect 
a situation within your own realm of reality, right? And if you have never had any exposure, true exposure to the people down here, I mean, it's very different. And, you know, we, the for the majority, I mean, church is really important. It's a part of, uh, it's very, you know, embedded in the culture. People go to church on Sunday. They, um, and, and, and not just, to worship, but it's kind of like a social it's, event. I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean, if you meet somebody down here, that's, do that's one to? of the questions you're going to get asked, right? <laughs> where do you go to church? Where your kids go to school? What do you do for a living? Where do you go to church? That's right. That's mm -hmm. right. So that's one of the things. And, um, you know, but, you know, people also like to get together and they like to tailgate and they're all about their football. And, you know, do you pull for, you know, do you pull for USC and Columbia, the Gamecocks? You know, are you a Gamecock or are you a Tiger? Mm -hmm. Clemson. I mean, there is no other teams. No. And there's no like, pro teams like the big cities, right, where they all live on their pro sports. Everything down here is college athletics. And right. in, the, in South Carolina, they treat college athletics like Philadelphia treats the Eagles. Like that's, yeah, you know, on Saturday, nobody's anywhere but in one of those two stadiums usually. Yeah. It's, I mean, but the other thing that is a big deal down here is family. You know? Yeah. I yeah. mean, your family's everything and you'll do anything for your family. Like you stick together. Yeah. So that's, I know we kind of touched on that before, but dive a little deeper on that. Right. Cause that's that idea of, you know, it, he would kill his wife and his son because of his financial problems. So, like I just, so I, let's go back. I can't get over that one. I, like, I can't and, either. and I'm, I'm going to preface this too, because if some, if people are watching this and they're like, Oh, these people think he's innocent. I'm not saying he's innocent. No, I don't know. I'm saying, I don't think the prosecution did a very good job because when I would watch all these national media shows, they're all like, Oh, he did it. He did it. He did it. And I'm like, where is that coming from now? Maybe if you like live in New York or, you know, one of those towns where it's like, oh, hey, you know, I leave, I get married, I have my kids, I see my parents once a year, you know, that's, but, yeah. but in down here, it's not like that. I mean, we usually all live within about 15 miles of each other. Our kids grow up around here. They have, they and, have and, kids. Like, and, and 15 miles for someone who lives in a big city like New York is probably like, you live on the same block. <laughs> right. You yeah. I, I was going to say, we drive everywhere, right? It's not like we're getting in a an Uber and going somewhere. Like if a, a 30 minute drive is nothing around here no, to get to something. That's nothing, you know? And, um, but you know, family is, it's everything. And, and I, it was interesting because after the verdict came in and he was guilty and all these people were like, Oh, you know, he has no soul and he's this and he's that. And we knew it all along. And I'm sitting there going, <clears throat> Oh my gosh. You know, like <laughs> everybody no jumps soul. on the bag or yeah. the bandwagon afterwards. I'm like, okay, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Everyone has a soul, you know, but, but it, it was silly. But, but the point is, you know, they want to, on one hand, I hear these same people on one hand saying, oh, he's a monster. He was trying to, you know, orchestrate this big thing after the boating accident and, and not let these kids talk to anyone and trying to pin it on someone else. And, you know, that was terrible. It really was. But then my brain's going, yeah, but I'm not really surprised because number one, he's an attorney. Um, he's like, 
trying to divert the attention off of his son because he loves his son and he's trying to protect him. And he's like, Oh crap, what am I going to do here? You're talking about the boat incident the boating or the, the, the drunk driving thing? The boating accident. Okay, Let's gotcha. talk about the boating accident yeah. first, you know? And so I hear these people talking about it um, on national news and they're like, he was a monster, you know, but you know, it wasn't right what he was doing. To but, me I, that, but I but I get what he was yeah. doing. Like he was trying to protect his child. And I'm like, okay, if you're gonna go to those extremes, right? right you probably love your child, you probably have a good relationship with your kid, and you just want to protect them, right? Because look at what he I mean, what did he when they were at the hospital, right? His his uh son was in the hospital, there was two other three other people in the hospital after this boat thing. He goes into the hospital and he's in there flashing the solicitor's badge around, which we know he shouldn't have had to begin with, but he's flashing that badge around and like trying to get everybody's story straight to cover his son. Be wrong. He shouldn't have done it. But how does that jive with, oh, I've got money troubles. I'm going to kill that same kid that, been, that, that, that I just so hard to protect. Yeah. That I literally probably just put my law license on the line for yeah. and uh, cast dispersions on another kid to try to make people think he was driving the boat. If you don't know the boat story, whole different conversation, but it's uh, you know, I don't, I can't reconcile those two things. Like, again, I know you don't have to prove motive. So that was a big hurdle. The jury didn't have to overcome, but just from That's a personal standpoint, sense. I'm like, I don't understand how those two things go together, right. you know? And then, and then I've heard people talk about, um, so he got into, he, he was drinking and driving and his girlfriend was in his truck with him. This is several years ago. This is before the boating accident. And um, they get in a wreck, goes off the road, truck turns over and she calls 911. And he's like, don't call 911. He calls his parents. <laughs> right. And mom and dad come out to the scene. And the first thing they do is they're like getting rid of the beer cans and stuff. Yeah. Right. Cause they know that. Wouldn't that be a normal mom and dad thing? Like if my know. kid, if you're my kid got into, I'm probably going to get slammed, but, I, but I'm like, I mean, if my kid got in, got into an accident, there'd be a big enough problem with the accident. Right. Okay. So we're in the right. South. So, so this is what you're saying. You freaking knucklehead. Like, what were you thinking? Yeah. Right? I, and you're I, also at the same time throwing with yeah, your be like, You're a freaking idiot. Like, you know, what the hell are you doing? That's, I mean, you know, that's what we'd both be saying the same thing. Um, we've got four kids. We've had plenty of idiot moments, you know, right. but at the same time you love them and you're trying to, so that to you're me, that hoping that at some point they're going to grow up and the frontal lobe is going to develop enough that they're not idiots anymore, right? right? That they don't yeah. make bad decisions and that yeah. they think in advance and they don't have that reptile brain anymore. It usually happens, but it, for for boys, it happens really late in life. Like, yeah, and, and I feel like that's probably what was, what his parents were probably thinking too. Yeah, I mean, obviously the whole conversation about what kind of person Paul was is a different conversation, but I, I think what's happened is they've had a string of things in that family and so it's easy to take all those things and pull them together and did. And I, again, I'm, I'll be very clear. I'm not saying that what he did was right. Right. He's what he did was not right. Um, but the purpose of the conversation is to say, how, how do you focus your entire life around protecting your family from anything bad that happens, even to the point where you're 
putting your career and your law license in jeopardy. And then in the same turn, a few years later, decide to kill your wife and your son. I mean, let's just say not a few years. Let's say. I mean, it was only two let's, years, let's right? Well, the this. boat wreck was. Well, hold up, hold up. Yeah. Let's, let's just say. I mean, we all heard the tape at the kennels. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he's on. He's. There's no. Like agitation there's or nothing happening between the three of them they're all talking it sounds and, like and the dogs another night run up with a chicken and got one of the chickens you know and they're like oh it's a guinea no it's just a chicken he's like get over here and gets the chicken out and he's like oh you know and that's it and they're saying that literally within a few minutes after that he just flips out and kills them both mm-hmm and then and then calls people and acts like nothing happened. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't. It, That's I mean, the that part doesn't. I've just never been able to wrap my head around that. The other thing that I can't wrap my head around that's directly related to, to that is the two gun theory. Yeah. Right. The idea that he's like, okay, if I'm gonna let's say I'm gonna lose my mind, right? I'm an average like I'm on oxy and I've taken so much and I'm a crazy person and. I don't know what I'm doing. I never am any other right? day, but I am right. this day. Today, I have no idea what I'm doing, and I'm completely clueless, and I've, I've gone psychopathic, um, and I'm going to kill my wife and my son, and I'm going to do it with two completely different guns, right, in a state of complete, like, lunacy, right? I'm going to shoot one of them with a rifle. Well, which one did they say the was killed first? first? Paul was Paul killed first. So I'm going to shoot Paul with a shotgun, and then I'm going to put the shotgun down. And I'm gonna go pick up a different gun, which I've put right there. Right, it's not like uh, okay. Did they, I didn't. Did I shoot Paul with a rifle and then I ran to the barn to get the blackout and come back? It, it didn't work like that. They they said they were shot pretty quickly in between each other. Subsequently, so you'd have you to have mean, two guns staged, or there's two shooters. Right. So it's what, the only way that worked. I guess what the prosecution was saying was, you know, he was. Uh, thought about it enough that he was going to make it look like it was somebody else but then that kind of gets you outside of the part of him being a lunatic and being you know in some kind of state of can i can i just ask this question do you not think okay so we've we've already established the fact that we're comfortable with guns and hunting um do you not think that if our kids were you know cleaning up after the dogs and doing some chores and I'm down there. Do you not think that they would think it was very weird if you walked up with two guns and set them on the side, you know, next to where I'm working or where our, one of our kids is working. Like you just kind of show up and then. I don't know if they think it was weird. Not, they'd ask me what I was, they'd be like, like, what? they'd be like, are we going hunting? They'd be like, are we going to the range? But it's, what, night. Like, it's nighttime, but they hog hunt at night, but they had a shotgun. Yeah. Why would that would be super weird? I don't know. I mean, in that setting, I don't know if I would have thought it was like super weird that he walked up with guns, but I for sure think they probably would have asked something about it. But I, I'm I kind of go back to where you were, which is he's just sitting there talking very natural on the audio, mm -hmm. you know, and then supposedly it happened like you know, seconds later or a couple minutes later. 
That just doesn't really you know? make sense to me. And I didn't, I don't have enough knowledge about forensics to dig into all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I know that. Oh, that makes me think of something else that I thought was super strange. What's that? And I, and I really felt like the defense missed the opportunity here. They should have brought in another witness on this just to corroborate the other witness. The, they did bring in one person, right? Mm -hmm. The Okay. We know that this crime scene was not protected. Well, at all. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. You're right. But the, bodies were not appropriately checked for time of death. The wet bulb to check temperature versus doing yeah, the correct they established time the of death with the phones temperature essentially. with you know the rectal thermometer on you know that's the proper way to do it. Mm -hmm. Why didn't they do that? I mean it sounds he put his hand under his arm to you can't you can't even check your kids temperature that way. The entire crime scene was a mess i mean that's i, I from whatever but I, it sounds to me like most people are in agreement that sled and whoever handled the crime scene botched it right they didn't take tire tracks right they i mean again they could have gone and i mean it, it's a farm it's not like you're driving on pavement everything's dirt right. everything's mud you could easily have gotten gone out and tire and uh made imprints on every tire track out there how about the black light for a blood splatter yeah they didn't do blood spatter with any kind of a, a black light or anything like that they just I, I, from i don't even know if they did i'm trying to remember what they said on the forensics when it came to blood spatter but i think they only tested the shirt right Oh, that's a whole different. Issue. I mean, which I mean, that's they, a they, different conversation. That was the the prosecution actually misled a grand jury to get the indictment with false evidence from the shirt. But they didn't really see the uh, email, right? He didn't supposedly see the email. How often do you not see your lab. super important emails on yeah. an enormous case that you know you have coming up? Yeah, hmm. that's oh, I didn't oh, see a that. Strange. Yeah, that's a little. But yeah, I mean, I just think, like you said, the whole the fact that they didn't do time of death through the thermometer like you said and then literally it was just accepted by the court the time of death was established by phones simply scary. because the phones were turned off at the same time but then her her phone has motion had activity had activity right. i mean chain you know it's the light comes on, light goes off, light comes on, light goes off, light comes on, light goes off. But see the prosecution you used know, that as a it as changes a, from it changes you know, from landscape to portrait, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's being moved around. The prosecution, though, used that as a a positive because they said that the phone where it was eventually found, when they tracked that back to the OnStar data, that his truck slowed down right where the phone was found and then sped back up. But again. you know, it so it, they were inferring it that he slowed threw it down out. what two or three miles an hour and then or like it it, did, it hardly slowed down that. and then it. I think he went from 45 to, uh, oh, wait, what was it? For, uh, like 45 to 47 and then back down to 44 or something like that. It was just a few, it, it wasn't any significant number, hmm. but that, but that was the spin, you know, that was a spin doctor of the, of the prosecution coming out, kind of making things bigger than they were. And, and they have a job to do. I get that. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. He may have done it. It's just, 
You know what I thought was interesting? Don't make sense. When they did the closing statements that I thought was really interesting was when the defense got out the chart with the steps. Oh yeah, that was interesting. Of him afterwards that he basically broke it down and he said, okay, between 902 and 906, this was supposedly right after the murder had happened that they only clocked him for 283 steps, which came out to in a certain amount of time, right? In four minutes, Mm -hmm. um, which supposedly was a very, um, it was something that the, the, because of his phone activity, the prosecution had said this was when he was cleaning up. You were scurrying you were scurrying around. around was the word I think that he used. But when they actually did uh, the forensics on it and used and the, the phone data, it was one step per second. Which six was, steps per which was sixty-three like steps, which was pacing. A, a normal slow walk. Right. So he wasn't scurrying around. He was just walking normally. Yeah. Okay. Right. And again, I know people will probably, you know, jump in and out, whatever. We are not arguing for his innocence. We are talking about how weak we thought the case was by the state. And some discrepancies. And some discrepancies. Um, And I think the the fact that the law in South Carolina, that you don't have to prove motive, that you can convict on circumstantial evidence, was a huge part of the conviction. Because I think if this would have got tried in a state where you have to prove motive and you have to have direct evidence. I don't think this would have been, could have, it's not, wasn't a conviction unless they just got a jury that, you know, had seen the media. So I thought a really um, compelling visual for the prosecution was when they had the shotgun and they kind of enacted this thing in the door frame to show how tight it is to basically nullify the testimony of the expert witness from the Georgia Federal or the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a very, very credible witness who testified that the way the blood splattered and the way that the the, the skull um, ejected the brain was through the back, right? And mm-hmm. it was had to do with the gaseous pressure within the cranium, all this stuff. It was very interesting. But they used it to dispel, like basically just nullify his whole testimony, which was, it, but it was really convincing the way they turned the thing and he couldn't really get it in the door frame and all of this. And I remember I said to you, I said, okay, let's just assume innocence for a second. And let's assume that it is a criminal who killed these people. Do we think a criminal doesn't use a sawed off shotgun? It's a lot easier to conceal. If like, you're going to use a shotgun, it's a lot easier to take around, um, you know, and why would somebody use a sawed off shotgun? Again, we go back to guns. To commit right? a crime, right? Right. Well, like, what is it? So, what does sawing it off do? Makes it more concealable. Yeah. It's easier to carry. It makes it more mm-hmm. concealable. And it also spreads the grouping out. I see. I didn't even know Right. That. So if you, the longer the barrel, the tighter the grouping you have for a longer period of time. Gotcha. The shorter the barrel, the the more damage it's going to do at a short distance because you're going to get a fast spread of the the um, the shot. But none of that stuff was ever even it was, yeah, discussed. I mean, they didn't in. even bring up the idea that it could have been sawed off. I mean, I felt like that moment with the gun. <laughs> 
was kind of a an OJ moment with the gloves. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah. such a powerful visual. <laughs> the visual. That it was like, oh my gosh, that is ridiculous. There's no way that they could have gotten that gun around it. Like, I'm watching it and I'm thinking that. But at yeah. the same time, I'm like, well, there's nothing to say. It wasn't a sawed-off shotgun or, you know, that he fell forward or, I don't know. Another interesting thing that the um, directive that the judge gave to the jury was if any witness, if you do not believe any witness is credible or telling the truth in anything they say, you can completely eliminate any bit of their testimony. Yeah. So, which allows the jury, if, if they're questionable about anything, it allows them to dump a lot of information out of their brain and go, okay, that doesn't even play a role in my decision. No, it didn't seem like. Doesn't seem great. But see, I think that to me that what that does is that eliminates like there's all this conversation about how personable and how uh emotional he was, uh Murdoch when he got on the stand and how much he loved his family. Mm-hmm. But if you thought he was a liar about even one thing about anything, then you could completely eliminate anything Everything. he said. And so now his two days worth of testimony. Um, where he had a lot of wins, I thought, just I from the standpoint yeah. of the way he responded to certain questions and and putting his humanity forward so that people might see him as a different kind of person. That all goes out the window. For sure. Well, that poses another good question. And that is about um, the way the financial evidence was, al- the financial information was allowed into evidence and was able to be used by the prosecution I'm sitting here watching this and I think, you know, I'm a nobody, right? But I watched that judge and I'm like, he seems very biased. To me, he seemed very biased for the prosecution. And I don't understand how that information should have been allowed into evidence when those those cases have not been tried. He has never been convicted of any of those crimes. Right. Now, he got up there and admitted it, which poses a, I mean, I felt like he had to because he had to say, listen, yeah, I did this. I did this. I did this. But in all honesty, I don't think that information should have ever been allowed into this case. He was not on trial for being, you know, a dirtbag. He was not on trial. For- I think the judge, I don't, maybe I heard this wrong, but I thought the judge said he let it in because he had admitted it to his partners already that he had already admitted but that's hearsay i thought it might have been in an affidavit i don't know what i don't know the uh, details of the financial cases at i don't all, know other than I, what was disclosed I, at the, i thought thing. it was interesting and i thought that it um was something that probably shouldn't have shouldn't have i mean it makes everybody listening oh i mean how do you how do you just look at the evidence after that? I mean, really? I don't know. <clears throat> it was kind of a strange thing. I thought it was strange. I'm, too. I was trying to look at my notes because there was something else that I was going to bring up. And I, um, the blue raincoat thing. I thought that was weird too. I, I, the prosecution made a huge deal out of that and it, seemed like a nothing burger like, yeah to me too but you know they kept talking about the fact that it had gunshot residue on it okay 
So what they're saying is that there was a blue raincoat yeah. that they now say they found in the closet of his father, who at one time was a hunter, and that's and they... it had gunshot residue <clears throat> on it. And there, and they also said that he that's that's where he hid the guns. Like that's what the prosecution kept going back said. to is that he took the guns with him. That's why he ran over to his mom and dad's house. Uh, you know, right afterwards. And was there any testimony that she saw him that night come in with something wrapped up? Shelly said that she thought she remembered him carrying something in a blue tarp. But that wasn't that night, was it? I don't remember. But I think it was because I think that they, the prosecution said, or she testified, one of the two, that he had kind of made some kind of a statement to her about you know you didn't see me carrying anything or i can't remember if it was I testimony or look at that i didn't yeah. think it was the same because day. they refer like the prosecution spent a lot of time on it in his closing arguments but i don't remember the testimony as well around it um but it was obviously important because he spent a lot of time talking about it the other day yeah i don't know i don't know i, I thought there were some missed opportunities um to explain some things and i'll be honest with you it was scary it what was... about <laughs> what about the judge's visit like that was something that we that you talked about a lot right when we were talking about mm -hmm. this was that we felt like that the judge ruled uh on the side of the plaintiff on motions almost everything on uh, objections that very rarely you know did the judge rule in the defense's favor right I, I don't know. I mean, there's, <laughs> I don't know the why it just was kind of like a, something that we made an observation about, like, it just seems like, and I didn't feel like the state had a super compelling case, but anytime there was something that was a little bit like, eh, the judge would kind of instruct the jury, you know, in a way that would, um, and I'm not, let me be very clear. I'm not inferring that he did anything wrong. I don't think he did. I don't know the law enough to even evaluate that. I just, as a bystander watching the trial, right? I just, it was like, and then even after the trial, um, you know, before he uh, handed down sentencing and he talked about it and even the verdict yesterday, he, he made the statement, you know, that there was a preponderance of evidence. Right. Can I just say like one thing I thought this morning when we were watching the sentencing, I thought he was going to give him the death penalty. Yeah. Well, he said that the state hasn't asked for the death penalty, but then he kind of went into this thing about, Hey, you know, Murda, you've like represented people, your firm's represented people and you've gone after the death penalty. Like, but the state's I not know. asking for it. Like I was kind of like, Oh, is he going to like, I thought, I thought that's what was coming. I literally like, I was like, no way. Like, I, I don't even know. I really, and then he kept talking and then I thought, I wonder if he's like trying to decide, hmm. but I, but I really felt like it was, it was going to be the max. There was no question. I just, you know, I, we're human and, and human nature is such that if you read about something or you follow something, you're generally going to develop some sort of an opinion. And he probably had a bit of an opinion going into it, you know, well, he, I thought the statement that he made today before sentencing was really interesting when he was talking about how the person standing 
in front of you, me right now, does not necessarily have to be the person that was there that night. And that he had, had presided over so many trials where, you know, there was uh, a lot of direct evidence mm -hmm. and that the person who committed the crime, while it was the same human being, was not of the same mind, was not of the same state, you know, wherever, whether it was, you know, chemically induced or just a fit of rage or whatever, was not the same person. And he spent a little bit of time talking about that today before he handed the sentence down. Like he may not be able to understand. I mean, he might be with us, you know, there's a lot of questions. Like, I wish I knew exactly what happened. The interesting thing about um, I think his name's Clifton Jenkins, but he's he was a an attorney, had his own practice in Columbia and King's Tree before he became a judge, and he's been I think an elected judge since 2000 or 2001, but in South state of South Carolina, you have to retire at the age of 72. You can't hear cases anymore. And he was born in 1951. So this is, might be the last case he ever presides over. Oh and if it's not, gosh. it's one of the last. So it was definitely a legacy case for him, which, Ooh. and again, I'm not saying he did anything wrong. I don't, I wouldn't even know whether he did or not, but as a person knowing this is a national case everyone's watching it it's probably going to be you know a legacy case for me there's i'm sure it was a lot of thought as to how he handled everything i thought he was very i thought he was thoughtful about very things. thoughtful about things mm -hmm. like you said we both kind of felt like he he might have leaned in the prosecution's favor a lot but again i'm looking at it from a layperson standpoint just somebody who's watching it i don't know mm -hmm. the law so he i do you know i do think that he did a good job saying you know we're gonna take a little break i need to consider this yeah i thought that, that was, was smart. i like the fact smart. that he did that you know that he's thoughtful about mm -hmm. things and didn't mm -hmm. just kind of knee-jerk rule on things every time right yeah it was interesting so i mean that's kind of our, our initial reaction to this whole thing you know we'll keep an eye on the comments and if there's anything that people say, hey, you know, talk more about this or talk more about that when it comes to the state or you know, want us to dive anything else a little bit deeper, we can do a follow up on this. So I think if we, not, it's kind of our opinion on what happened. I will say one one just parting thought. I think we expect an appeal probably within the week with in, in, in one week. Yeah, I'm sure it'll it, I'm sure it'll go to appeal. Don't they have I mean, to wait a week or something? I, don't know. So, I think it's something like a week. But so. The, the, the question I kept asking myself in closing is, if I was on the jury, would I have convicted him? Right? And I was actually surprised. I, I know I, I just said we're going to finish, but this is, I guess I'll finish with this. <laughs> I was surprised at how fast it came back. Oh, right? I, I thought this thing was going to get deliberated for a long time, um, at least like a week. You know, and we were what we watched the end of the trial yesterday. I know. And I was like doing something. You were outside or something was going on. And all of a sudden I said, like, okay, I, I saw on news. I was like, the they're back. I sent you a text. I was like, the verdict's in. Get up here. It was like four hours after they ended. Not even like, I don't even think it was three hours that they. Yeah. Yeah. So circling back to what you said at the very beginning, that jury decided. knew for a long time what they were going to do long time um but how about the interesting again <laughs> is this in closing the juror right yeah the, the, oh, i totally yes. forgot about this closing stuff but the, ju that the was a there was a deal. juror that was removed 
that morning. Yesterday morning. And they had supposedly shared their opinion with some people. And they never said this, but you could tell based upon the conversation with the defense counsel that they didn't think he was guilty. It was I, probably... I mean, I don't know if they did or not, but I, I did find it interesting that the defense is the one who argued against her. Removal. That's what I'm saying. So they were specific and said, it does you know, make you think that the judge said, sure. you know, what do you have to say? Like what defense, you know, I know you have, you know, what, what would you like to say? Cause he knew they were going to say something mm -hmm. and they were arguing against her removal. Right. So that was probably there. And if, if they had had that person, they might've got a hung jury. <laughs> or at the very least, we wouldn't have got a verdict in four hours. Plus. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't know what we're going to be looking at on our phones, and I don't know what we're going to be talking to people about for the next week. But it's been a wild ride in South Carolina. To be sure. <laughs> so thanks for spending some time with us.